The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our current series from 2 Corinthians, God's Call to Church Action. This is Part 17, The Life of Separation, from 2 Corinthians 6, verses 11 through 18. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. Will you open your New Testaments to the epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, the second letter, chapter 6, and verses 11 through 18. Our last study brought us to the end of one of the most exhaustive dissertations on the Christian ministry that we find anywhere in Paul's writings. Now he turns to another subject which is not unrelated to what has proceeded. Scholars tell us that verses 14 through 18, if you glance at them, are possibly an interpolation. In fact, Many believe that it's a fragment of a previous letter that Paul possibly refers to in his first epistle, chapter 5 and verse 9. But on closer examination, it is evident to me and to many of my brethren in the ministry that there is both an underlying sequence and relevance with what has preceded and what follows. His theme in these verses is the fellowship of separation. Without separation, there is no fellowship. And conversely, without fellowship, there can be no separation in the walk and in the service of a man of God. Indeed, the apostle makes it abundantly clear that fellowship and separation are both indissoluble as well as indispensable. How appropriate it is, then, that such a subject as the one we have before us this morning should follow so closely on what I consider to be the greatest treatment of the Christian ministry we find anywhere in the scriptures, leave alone the apostle's writings himself. In a sentence, then, the call to a life of service is the call to a life of separation. Now, this is not a popular subject, and I doubt if there are many pulpits today that still stand by the message contained in these verses. And I'm so glad that this isn't just a passage I have chosen to speak on. It just happens to come in the course of our expository studies through the second epistle to the Corinthians. But I don't know when they've made such an impact upon my life as they have over these last few weeks that I've pondered them perused them, studied them, and allowed their searchingness to enter my soul. And what has to be said today and, God willing, next week on this passage is going to set a standard for many here. It may have the effect also of cleaving the audience in twain. And you will have to stand or rise, not before what Stephen Olford has to say, but in the light of what God has to say. Never in our whole lifetime has a passage like this been more relevant at the one time and also more diametrically opposed to the trend of teaching and living. The life of separation. So I'm going to ask you to look with me at two of the four main points 
that deal with this passage. We'll deal with two of them this morning and the last two, God willing, next week. Let us consider then, first of all, what I'm calling the divine motivations for a life of separation. The divine motivations for a life of separation. Verses 11 and 12. O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Paul opens this paragraph with a most unusual form of address. Only in two other places in all his writings does he personally address his readers in this fashion. But yet it's stronger than anywhere else. Quite obviously, he's about to say something that's heavily upon his heart. And so he bursts out with these words, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you. We're holding back nothing. I'm going to say everything that's in my heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And our heart is enlarged. I'm not speaking to you in some obscurantist, narrowed way. I'm talking to you out of an open mouth, but a large heart. A heart that's been enlarged. Now, as we've already observed, the verses that follow have to do with the doctrine of separation. And the teaching is to be hard-hitting and heart-searching. So Paul prepares his hearers by giving the divine motivations for a separated life. Paul had proved that a life of separation produces two things, which, in my judgment, is the supreme motivation. First of all, an enlargement of heart. An enlargement of heart. Back to verse 11. O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you and our heart is enlarged. Now let us recall that Paul had been sharing with his readers something of the agony of the ministry that we saw in our last study. He has detailed some of the tribulations, the obligations, the contradictions that are woven into a man's ministry. The kind of experiences he faced in the course of his own work. But such was his devotion to his Lord in a life of separation and service that it hadn't restricted his heart. As a matter of fact, it had enlarged his heart. His life of separation and devotion to Jesus Christ had not withered him. It had caused him to blossom an enlarged heart. Chris Ostom, commenting on this verse, says, As that which warmeth is wont to dilate, so also to enlarge is the work of love. And it is interesting to recall that the largeness of heart was one of the gifts that God gave to King Solomon at the very height of his fame and his fear before God. So often the devil attempts to deceive God's people by suggesting to them that a life of separation leads to narrowness. Whereas in point of fact, a life of separation leads to a largeness of heart. The Corinthian believers were only able to read these words in the light of an experience Paul had had. And therefore, they not only hear the words as it were, they feel the words. He speaks to them out of an enlarged heart. The separated man is a man with a large heart. And Paul's heart was large, so large, in fact, that he was receiving them all. He says, oh, ye Corinthians, and he embraces the lot of them in spite of their disgraceful behavior. There's no narrowness in him. We're most inconsistent intellectually in viewing this matter of separation. For separation, as I say, is not narrowness but largeness. 
But in order to be large and accurate in our Christian life, sometimes we have to take a separated walk. And that separated walk involves our towing the line as touching the truth of God and the demands of God. And of course, this is true in every other area. You can't be broad-minded in mathematics. Mathematics are an exact science. And it doesn't matter how tolerant you are. You can't make two and two make five. You can't make two and two make three. Two and two make four. And you've got to narrow yourself, as it were, to that fact. But that narrowing down, that separation to that fact, doesn't actually make you an obscurantist. It makes you a true mathematician. Likewise, in the Christian life, the separated life does not in any way narrow you in the wrong concept of that term. It enlarges you. But with the enlargement of heart, of course, there is another motivation here, not only an enlargement of heart, but a discernment of mind. Ye are not straightened in us, says Paul in verses 12 and 13, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children. Be ye also enlarged. One of the fruits of a close walk with God is the spirit of discernment, and Paul had it. He had no problem in analyzing the situation at Corinth. What they couldn't see about their own lives, he saw through and through. He says to them that they were so narrow that they couldn't even understand him. And yet they were claiming to be broad-minded and tolerant. In fact, so tolerant that they didn't even recognize the most heinous sin when it came into their own midst. Even though they were his children in the faith, they had not reciprocated the love that he had lavished upon them. So he appeals to them to be enlarged in heart and discerning in mind. Now, once again, the average church member is unaware of the fact that no one can really be broad-minded in the biblical sense without a life of separation from sin on the one hand and a dedication to God on the other hand. This explains why so many Christians who've been for years on the heavenly pathway have no discernment whatsoever. The writer to the Hebrews speaks to this point very lucidly when he says, For when the time came that ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one should teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and have become such as need milk and not strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full grown, even to those who by reason of age, yes, and of use, have their senses exercised, developed, to discern both good and evil. And if there is a twofold motivation that drives me to understand this doctrine of separation and to practice it by the power of the indwelling spirit, then that twofold motivation is just this. Oh God, I want an enlargement of heart. Oh God, I want a discernment of mind. And without separation, there are neither the enlargement of heart or discernment of mind. So you face it and you answer it in your own soul. If you want an enlargement of heart, if you want a discernment of mind, which is the ultimate in spiritual health, then you must face the challenge of a separated life. But that brings us immediately to our next consideration, which is the major burden 
of my message this morning. With the divine motivations for a life of separation, we now come face to face with the divine prohibitions for a life of separation. The divine prohibitions for a life of separation. Now look with me very carefully and follow right the way through from 14 onwards. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then verse 17, be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. There are the two prohibitions with qualifying statements for each. The apostle makes it quite clear in these verses that there are such things as prohibitions in the Christian life. And he makes it equally plain that we neglect them at our peril. The verses before us present two such prohibitions with certain qualifying statements. Let's look at them together. The first is this. Mark it carefully, jot it down in your notebook, if not in your Bible. The separated life demands the refusal of all unholy associations. The separated life demands the refusal of all unholy associations. Be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now with great emphasis, the apostle insists on no permanent relationships with those who are unbelievers. His language is borrowed from the Old Testament where God decreed thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. The whole idea behind this prohibition is that there are certain things which are essentially distinct and therefore fundamentally incompatible. In the very nature of things, they can never be brought into harmony from the Christian point of view. I repeat, they're distinct by their very nature and therefore incompatible and can never be brought together in terms of the Christian point of view. And then he gives us five reasons for proving his point. Five reasons which I want you to follow carefully. Why is it that I should not have permanent relationship with that which is unbelieving in a world that crucified Jesus Christ? Why should I not be unequally yoked with unbelievers? Why? Here are five answers. First, there is a standard to uphold. There is a standard to uphold. Verse 14, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Or more literally, what sharing is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Now the standard of moral rectitude demanded of the Christian is utterly different from the latitudinarianism practiced in the unregenerate world. Unfortunately, in the so-called religious world of today, men are propounding the hellish doctrine of a new morality, which reduces God's absolutes to relatives. This has led to what is known as situational ethics. By this it is meant that there are certain situations in life in which I can adjust God's demands to suit my convenience. This passage, however, makes it quite clear that failure to uphold God's standard of morality is to depart from the pathway of separation. And young people here, I appeal to you to listen to me throughout this entire address this morning. And older ones too. And the first reason I put to you for this life of separation, this life that demands that you be not unequally yoked with unbelievers is simply this. Point number one, there is a standard to uphold. 
And it's about time the church rose in protest against the watering down of the divine and absolute standards of Almighty God. There is a standard to uphold. Secondly, there is a conscience to respect. A conscience to respect. What communion hath light with darkness? Verse 14. By the miracle of regeneration, not only the Corinthians referred to in our text, but all Christians down through the centuries have been delivered from the power of darkness and have been translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. All such believers then are exhorted to walk, listen carefully, as children of light. Children of light. This means that nothing less, nothing less than to behave under the guidance of a God-enlightened conscience is incumbent upon all of us. No one can live in the power of an ungrieved Holy Spirit without coming into conflict with darkness. And the question is, what communion hath light with darkness? If you have an enlightened conscience and here you're faced with darkness, then Obviously, there's only one way to go. It's to walk as children of light. The Bible reminds us God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, goes on cleansing us from all sin. So to walk the pathway of separation necessitates that we respect the voice of conscience. There is a standard to uphold. Secondly, there is a conscience to respect in the Christian life. Number three, there is a master to obey. There is a master to obey. And what concord hath Christ with Belial? What concourse hath Christ with with Belial. The verse contains the only occurrence of the name or term Belial in the New Testament. The Hebrew word signifies a person who's worthless or a person who's wicked. In this context, it is employed to represent Satan. So on the one hand, we have Christ, who is the undisputed sovereign of anyone and everyone who has owned the Lordship of Christ. On the other hand, we have Satan, who has sway over the various spirits who incite evil in men and women in our day and generation. And Jesus reminds us that no man can serve two masters. It is obvious, therefore, that we're to be loyal to Jesus Christ or loyal to the devil. And loyalty to Jesus Christ leaves no room for compromise with the devil. And furthermore, such loyalty is synonymous with a life of separation. A life of separation. Have you got it? Are you following me? There's a standard to uphold. Face that. There is a conscience to respect. Face that. There is a master to obey. Face that. Either you follow Satan or you follow Christ. And it's possible for a believer to follow Satan, as did Ananias and Sapphira, as did Peter at one point in his life. So that Jesus had to rebuke him and say, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God. Thou art an offense unto me. But come further. There is a witness to maintain. There is a witness to maintain. Verse 15. What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? 
According to Robertson, the great Greek scholar, the word infidel here means a disbeliever and not just an unbeliever. If that be true, then to maintain a Christian witness, a believer cannot throw in his lot, as the Greek has it here, cannot throw in his lot with an infidel. John the Apostle makes this absolutely clear when he says, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, which is the doctrine of Christ, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Our witness to Christ is paramount. It's far more important than friendship with other people. It's far more important than their popularity. It's far more important than getting your dollar. It's far more important than being a good guy amongst others. The witness to Jesus Christ is paramount. And we dare not tolerate anything in our lives which dims the light or dilutes the truth of that witness. There is a witness to maintain. But come further still, there is a purpose to fulfill. There is a purpose to fulfill. In verse 16 we read, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Now man's highest activity is the worship of the living God. For this very reason, Satan has sought to desecrate the meeting place of God with men down through the centuries. He tried to spoil it in the Garden of Eden. He tried to ruin it in the tabernacle days in the wilderness. His attempt again in the temple of old, and so on down through the centuries. Now he would desecrate the local church and in particular the individual life of the believer. As in the days of our Lord, even so in modern times, it's possible for our lives to be cluttered up with those who sell doves, who change money, who carry vessels through the temple so that the house of God becomes a den of thieves. A den of thieves. The supreme purpose of our lives is the worship of God. And this purpose can be violated and vitiated. How? By allowing anything in our lives that dims the vision of our God, that takes away the love of his word, that spoils the spirit of prayer, that makes me lazy in my Christian life. Anything calculated to take my attention away from God is an unequal yoke. Unequal yoke for what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? So we see that this prohibition to refuse unholy association in our lives is supported by a standard that we, are, uh, that we are to uphold, a standard that we are to uphold, a conscience that we are to respect, a master that we are to obey, a witness that we are to maintain, and a purpose that we are to fulfill. Before we leave this point, however, it is well that we draw attention to four practical areas where the unequal yoke can apply. And here it's where it comes right down to where you live, right down to where I live. Follow me very carefully here, because I want to be intensely practical. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, says the word of God. Why? Because there's a standard to uphold, a conscience to respect. Because there's a master to obey, a witness to maintain, a purpose to fulfill. Remember that, says the apostle. But now then, how does that touch your life and mine? Well, there are certain areas where it does touch. First of all, the ecclesiastical association. The ecclesiastical association. I'm talking now about refusal of any unholy association. 
Be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Every age has had its unbelieving world of religion. And as the coming of the Lord becomes more imminent, the situation is going to grow worse and worse. Peter tells us, and I quote, There shall be false teachers among you who privily bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. To associate with such men as these is to be partaker of their evil deeds. The scripture exhorts us, therefore, to reject such people, not to tolerate them, not to debate with them, but to reject them. And I want to challenge every businessman in this place this morning, every professional man, and you professional women. I wonder how many of you are supporting institutions and even churches and organizations that have these type of people in them. The scripture says, be not unequally yoked. And there are some ecclesiastical associations that have to be cut from your life if you're going to go through with God on this message this morning. But there is not only the ecclesiastical association, there is the matrimonial association. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. If this were the only verse in the Bible on this subject, it would settle once and for all the question of an unequal marriage bond. Writing his first epistle... On this very subject in the 6th and 7th chapters, Paul says this. People are to be married, and then he adds, only in the Lord. Moffat's translation, only a Christian. Quite apart from the suffering and sorrow and shame that such a relationship often brings, that is of an unequal yoke, the fact remains that an unequal yoke is a flagrant violation of God's revealed will. No informed Christian can ever question this, however plausible and persuasive are all the arguments to the contrary. A dozen people can come to me after the service and say, well, listen, I married a woman before she was a Christian, but she's become a Christian since. I will say it was direct disobedience, unqualified. And the fact that God in grace wonderfully overruled your mistake and has brought blessing out of it doesn't put that first right. It was sin of the worst sort, an unequal yoke, a violation of the law of separation. There are kids who'll come to me after then say, but can't I go and date somebody who's not a Christian? I may win them. No, my friend, you are violating absolutely and completely the truth we're teaching this morning. And the reason why kids get into trouble morally and become sexually involved and emotionally involved is simply because when they disobey God's clear teaching on this matter, they walk into these relationships without any protection whatsoever because God does not offer any protection to any fellow, any girl walking in the path of disobedience. And why young Christians break down and become sexually, I repeat, and emotionally involved and their lives are wrecked and they turn around and I said, I cried to God for help and he didn't give it to me. God said, I wouldn't give you any help anyway. Because you're in disobedience. God never protects a man who's walking in deliberate disobedience. There are then the ecclesiastical associations. Secondly, there are the matrimonial associations. Thirdly, there are the social associations. Be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers. When Paul wrote these words, he undoubtedly had in mind the kind of situation which would face many a Christian in the church at Corinth. A believer would receive an invitation to dine in a heathen home. The feast would begin and end with a pouring out of a libation to heathen gods. Now, could that Christian share in that act of heathen worship? 
or must he decline even at the cost of misunderstanding? Is he to walk the pathway of separation or to compromise with the world? That's the question. In this connection, it might be argued that our Lord was the friend of sinners and indeed received them and ate and drank with them. But true as this is, we must point out straight away that alongside of that tremendous fact, we read these words from the epistle to the Hebrews. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And though he walked right into the very den of sin and confronted men and befriended them in the sense of seeking to win them to his blessed self, they saw him apart. He never compromised his walk with God and it's recorded that he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. But with the ecclesiastical associations, the matrimonial associations, the social associations, I come to one that will touch all of us here this morning, and that's the vocational associations. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Once again, this had a very practical and painful application to many of those believers at Corinth. As William Barclay points out, suppose a man was a stonemason. What was to happen if his firm received a contract to build a heathen shrine? Supposing a man was a tailor, what was to happen if he was instructed to cut and sew garments for priests of heathen gods? Suppose a man was a soldier, and at the gate of every camp there burned a light upon the altar that was sacred to the godhead of Caesar. What was to happen if he had to fling, fling what would happen if he had to fling his pinch of incense? on that altar in token of worship. Time and time again in the early church, the choice must have come to any Christian and every Christian between safety and security in his job on the one hand and loyalty to Jesus Christ on the other. Barclay then goes on to give a modern example of this very thing. F.W. Charrington was the heir to a fortune made by brewing. He was passing a tavern one night and he lifted up his eyes and saw a woman waiting at the door. A man, obviously, her husband, came out and with one tremendous blow, straight in the face, knocked her down. Charrington started forward to help the woman. And then he looked up. And as he looked up, he saw right across the tavern his own name, F.W. Charrington. And Charrington said, and I quote, with that one blow, that man did not only knock his wife out, he also knocked me clean out of the business forever. And he gave up the fortune that he might have had, rather than touch money earned in such a way. Now, no man is the keeper of another man's conscience. Every man must decide for himself whether he can take his trade to Christ on the one side or take Christ into his trade. And there isn't a man in this place this morning or hearing my voice over radio who hasn't to decide in terms of the upholding of the standard. Yes, the voice of conscience, the following and obeying of the master, the fulfilling of the whole purpose of life as to what your decision has to be in your associations. So we see that in whatever associations we are involved, there is a standard to uphold. There is a conscience to respect, a master to obey, a witness to maintain, and a purpose to fulfill. Let us see to it that we always refuse unholy associations. Indeed, we must remember that to take the yoke of Christ is life received. 
To take the yoke of sin is lust conceived. To take the yoke of Christ is rest enjoyed. To take the yoke of self is peace destroyed. To take the yoke of Christ is heaven served. To take the yoke, to take the devil's yoke, is hell deserved. But that brings us to the second prohibition to which I want to draw your attention. Paul goes further. He has said already, be ye not, therefore, unequally yoked with be unbelievers. Be ye therefore not unequally yoked with unbelievers. But he says something else. And in verse 17, we have the essence of it. Wherefore, come ye out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. The separated life demands not only refusal of all unholy associations, but the separated life demands removal from all unholy contaminations. And this is another aspect of it. This is the second prohibition in our text and is supported by a whole chain of Old Testament quotations, as you'll notice in your margin. The apostle is reminding his readers that when God called his ancient people out of exile, they were to leave Babylon. And they were to leave everything else in Babylon, save the temple vessels that were holy. Now this principle still applies to our modern day. Our Christian testimony demands that we withdraw from unholy contaminations. Now let us be clear what we mean by this statement. When our Lord prayed for his disciples, you remember he said, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now from this prayer we learn that we're in the world, but not of it. Furthermore, we can be kept from the evil one even though we're not in what I would call an age that is conducive to living the Christian life. In fact, it's an age dominated by Satan and a Satan who knows that his time is short. However, there are certain situations in which a Christian may find himself which can defile and degrade him. When a believer becomes conscious of such contaminations, he must remove himself at once. For the scripture says, Come ye out from amongst them and be separate. Touch not the unclean thing. Thank God I can be living in a filthy world, but by his sanctifying grace, I can be insular to it all. Insular in the sense in which I'm kept pure in spite of all the contamination. Just like the diver who goes down into an element which is totally foreign to him, but he's receiving his life from above. And down there the water doesn't touch him and he does his work. Why? Because he's completely and utterly protected. So the Christian can so live in the world. But should he come into a situation where he senses that the atmosphere around him or the associations around him or the situations around him are contaminating him, defiling him, degrading him. He must come out and be separate. The word of God teaches it. And this brings us to a very important matter. This is true in the world, but it's also true in the church. Removal from unholy contaminations relates not only to the secular world, but also to the religious world. There are places and persons and even positions from which we are to withdraw ourselves if God makes that clear because of the contamination 
in which we're being involved. We're to mark a void and, if necessary, withdraw ourselves, says the Word of God, in the interests of the purity and unity of the church. Among the several passages that I could cite, I mentioned two. Writing to the Romans, Paul says, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. Now the context shows that the divisions had to do with these dissenters in the church at Rome who tried hard to affect not only belief but behavior. The word offenses has to do with behavior. The word divisions has to do with belief. And the Bible teaches and experience proves that loose thinking leads to loose living. And that we're to watch this and to avoid it in the church of Jesus Christ. We're not to tolerate it. This is the age of toleration and compromise. But the scripture stands and we're to uphold that standard. Then there is that word addressed to the saints at Thessalonica. Now we command you, and mind you, the word is strong. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which ye received of us. Sometimes the situation calls for more than avoidance. It demands withdrawal. And it may mean withdrawal from person. It may mean withdrawal from places. It may even mean withdrawal from positions. Here is a man holding a position, and he comes into an area of contamination where he cannot legitimately, according to the word of God, remain in that position. Even though he's going to lose his reputation and power and publicity, he must withdraw. He must withdraw. Dr. Klaas Runia, in a startling article entitled, When is Separation a Christian Duty?, published in Christianity Today last year, ably points out that although he respects all those who hold the stay-in view, he cannot agree with it. And then he gives us his reasons. He says, first, it does not take due account of the fact that by staying in to the bitter end, one shares in the responsibility for what's going on in it. Secondly, this position, of, this position almost of necessity leads to endless accommodations and compromise. Thirdly, it is really enough to denounce. Thirdly, is it really enough to denounce error, heresy, and laxity by preaching and writing only? Is it not also our duty to fight against it in the councils and courts of the church, thereby compelling the church to make its official position clear? The church within a church solution has shown itself to be impossible. In other words, there comes a moment of truth when every honest effort has been made to correct heresy. The sincere believer must separate himself in accordance with 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Come ye out from among them and be separate. John Calvin once wrote, A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw God's truth being attacked and would remain silent without even giving a sound. As evangelicals, we should realize that silence means co-responsibility for what is going on in our church. 
Dr. Runia goes on to say, but only those who have seriously tried to bring the church to reformation have found that the church not only refuses to reform, but continues to protect error and heresy. Those are searching words, but they're well spoken. And in such circumstances, I don't believe that there is any other alternative for you or for me in a situation like that than to withdraw. So we have seen that the first prohibition has to do with unholy associations. And unholy associations that we must stoutly refuse. While the second prohibition has to do with unholy contaminations from which we must unflinchingly withdraw. The word of God declares, be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers. And again, be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing. In poetic form, this simply means eternal standards God has set that man must study to obey. To lower them is to abet the work of Satan day by day. God says unequal yokes are wrong and separation is a must. To honor him is to be strong. To question him is sheer distrust. We then must heed his holy word and shun to take the devil's yoke, but rather yield to Christ as Lord. And thus no more our God provoke. God make us men and women who know the Nazareth vow, the Nazarite vow of holiness unto our God and a walk of separation. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.